0: Welcome back, everybody. We're here again with Julius Ruschel. I'm so delighted to be talking to you, Julius. I just think you, you uh, for those who don't know, Julius has uh, a website and he has written and published a number of just fascinating, penetrating, I think, right-on-point articles about the COVID situation, but especially about the psychological and historical dimensions of that. And so we're going to continue talking about that today. Last time, we spent quite a while talking about your article uh, that uh, discusses this, the the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen about the emperor having no clothes. And in that story, if I remember correctly, these swindlers sort of arrive in town and um, they they get the emperor to spend an obscene amount of money on clothes and then uh, you know they flatter him and the public follows along and they believe that he's wearing these beautiful lavish expensive clothes uh, even though he isn't wearing anything Right? Mm-hmm. and it takes a little child to stand up and, and point it out and say but mommy, he isn't wearing any clothes. And then that kind of shatters this image or shatters the facade, right? So if I understand, if I remember that story well enough, it sort of stands now as a euphemism for any any idea in which uh, we have a situation in which people are afraid to criticize something or someone because the perceived wisdom of the masses is, is, is what's believed to be important. And we just follow that, right? Um, and one interesting thing about that story is it seems like, you know, the swindler, the swindlers that came into town, they changed the emperor's psychology. They changed the psychology of the people in the town to believe something to be, you know, to believe something that wasn't true. Uh, and then when the little boy spoke out, it's like he reset the tech, the psychology of the masses again. Um, and I wanted to start off by asking you, do you think that fear, of the coronavirus or fear of something else going on these days is changing our psychology.
1: I think very much so. I mean, as you're telling that story with the, with the, the swindlers, I mean, the, the, what the swindlers main strategy was was to tell everyone in the crowd uh, and and the king himself that you know these these um, threads are so fine that essentially like you know you'd be a complete idiot if you can't appreciate the finery of this and so anybody that doesn't see it they're sort of like well now you're part of the of the you know the dumb unwashed that can't see it and so nobody wants to admit it least of all the king himself right so there's that that psychological pressure of how you're viewed and and falling out of lockstep of the crowd. And I think that has a, an enormous impact on how people think. Right.
0: That's so interesting. So you think that what was really stigmatizing in that story is being potentially called out for your ignorance, yeah. that the great fear was being uh, set apart from the sort of intellectual or the moral community of the crowd and being identified as not being either smart enough or not believing the right things or a combination of both or uh, something like that.
1: I mean, it's if, if the the real world example of this is the ash conformity experiments, right? Can you Where,
0: tell us about that for people who don't know necessarily?
1: Yeah, I think it was in the 70s or something, I can't remember the exact years, but they ran these experiments to see just how far this desire for conformity will push people. And so I mean, they, they set up essentially a room full of 10 people, and then they would have three lines and each person in turn was asked which of the three lines is the longest and there's a clear obvious difference as to which line is the longest, but you know nine out of those 10 people were actually actors that would then purposely all choose the wrong line. And so this person that's you know, he would be like you know that the actual test subject would be number seven or eight in the in the lineup. and he would be then, uh, uh or like uh, as he's watching these people go along and say the wrong thing, like you can see this person becoming more and more uncomfortable. And then they end up most of them saying that it's also the wrong line. Mm-hmm. Like, like they'll, they'll, they'll side with the actors that it's the wrong line, as opposed to saying what their own eyes can see. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the, the long and short of that is that, you know, not only do a lot of people actually, uh, override their better judgment in order to avoid standing out from the crowd but that that psychological pressure is so great that some of them will actually reach the point where they will believe it themselves so that that, you know your mind can't handle this these these two stories that are essentially happening at the same time and will actually rewrite your perceptions and your memory in order to uh, accommodate that in order to avoid falling out of step with the crowd.
0: So there's definitely this intellectual psychological sort of manipulation at work when we are trying to follow the norm, when we don't wanna be identified as believing something different than someone else or than the crowd. But there's a, there's a potential moral uh, uh, aspect to that as well, right? Because it can have moral implications if we end up believing something that's false and that causes harm to other people. Um, and then there are also interesting, I think, moral questions about what does it say about your character when conformity is your primary value, as opposed to individuality and integrity and self-reliance and reason and things like that that, right? There's a really interesting um, sort of body of literature on the culture of silence. Uh, And I know about this only because I teach a business ethics class. And we we, we look at um, why it is that within certain businesses, uh, whistleblowing is such a challenge right? And, and one of the hypotheses is that, well, there's a culture of silence and a culture of conformity. And uh, I think a lot of this literature came from Hannah Arendt, who covered the trial of Adolf Eichmann in the 60s. I think it might be- Eric
1: 60s. Eichmann, I think it is.
0: I, I yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, in the 60s and she said, you know, she's watching this the trial of this man who's responsible for the deportation of millions of Jews to the concentration camps. Uh, and she said, you know, what I would have, and she reported um, to the American media and then wrote about it extensively afterwards. And she said, what I found so surprising about him is that, he wasn't the diabolical evil mind that I thought he would be, that you would expect someone to have to be in order to be responsible for that. He was just kind of a regular guy who just kept saying he was following orders and going with the flow and things like that, right? And we've had some really interesting uh, psychological experiments since then that have confirmed the same sort of thing. You know, there are there's um, the, the the case of uh, people standing in line um, waiting to get coffee. To standing in the queue, and then, uh, you know, they ask people, what would you do if someone sort of uh, went in line ahead of you? And the vast majority of people say, oh, well, I would calmly and rationally ask them to move to the back of the line. When they run the experiment, only one in 25 or something actually do that, right? And most just let it happen and say nothing. Um, in sort of a real life example, we know that uh, in in the area of aviation, there's been a real problem with uh pilots and alcoholism and that there's a culture of silence surrounding that and when when asked about it the pilots say well you just don't rat on your body you just don't talk about it right mm-hmm. so there's a real moral aspect to this as well a moral dilemma to this as well and I think we're seeing in this situation that um, sort of unreflectively going with the flow and we might be inclined to think that that's a good thing that we're following orders that we're doing what we're told and that there's goodness and conformity and that we're all in this together and we might think that's a virtuous thing to do but we might also actually be causing a lot of harm
1: yeah i think that when when a society rolls off the rails like we are now the more conform a society is and, and and law abiding the more likely it is that they will be completely, you know, they'll succumb to that philosophy, whereas, um, you know, the the society that tends to, you know, stand up quickly to say no, is also the one that's going to be the first one to stand up now. I mean, which country in the world right now has the most vigorous um, protests? France, by far. Right. And I mean, they've had something like 12 or 13 revolutions since 1789. Not all of them ended up with, you know, guillotines. But the point is that they, you know, that's how many constitutions that they've had now, because they keep tossing everything out because they won't stand for it. And so they're the first ones to stand up. Canadians are known as being very polite and we have hardly anything going on, you know. So, so what,
0: what's the connection, do you think, between being polite and being good? Is there any connection? Is one an indication of the other? Or, or conversely, is it the opposite, do you think?
1: Well, I think that, you know, being polite is that you choose a path of non-confrontation as a way to solve things that, you know, you don't immediately, you know, get up in somebody's face to do something about everything that you don't like. But unfortunately, in this situation, the only way to do anything about it is to get up in the government's face and make a big fuss. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of pulling us in a direction that we're not accustomed to going. You know?
0: We see um, some catchphrases popping up in media messaging all the time. You know, we say, I just mentioned that do the right thing. Uh, this is extremely dangerous to democracy. And that phrase is usually used when they're describing uh, what they're calling misinformation, right? Or, or the kind of protesting that you are just describing. Uh, and they'll say that that's plaguing our country. And that, I, I mean, I've even heard the analogy uh, that the true virus is not Covid, But the true virus is misinformation or the true virus is defecting from the crowd or not following orders or or being a conscientious objector. I mean, in some sense, now we're saying that free thinking, you know, thinking for yourself, thinking critically, doing what Rosa Parks did. um, These are all not only undesirable, but they are the evil in society right now.
1: Well, I mean, this, what, we're, what you're describing is actually the government unleashing a propaganda campaign on its own citizens. And I mean, that used to be illegal after the Second World War. And I can't remember that when those rules came in, but it was illegal to use these kinds of propaganda campaigns on your own citizens. Right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, anybody that grew up during the Second World War know, or was alive at that point knows what it's like to, to be in the middle of that or somebody that grew up in the Soviet Union. But those rules have been changing. And I mean, there was that story here out of Nova Scotia. I think it was from last year where the uh, military actually invented a, uh, you know, there's a wolf on the loose and the wolves are are dangerous. And it was like, they actually were testing this and CBC reported on it not so long ago. Right. So they were using this propaganda campaign and I can't remember the exact details of the article, but they also did some of that initially with uh, COVID. They were admitting to it and then backed off of it again. Or at least they claim they have, but I mean it's pretty clear that that propaganda campaign is full bore being unleashed against us, and always playing on the good citizen story, all that stuff. You know, I- what
0: do you what do you take propaganda to be? How how should we understand the difference between something that's uh, propaganda or propagandistic on the one hand, and you know, a transparent presentation of information, and 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 where does where, where do we get to the line where one stops and another starts? Do you think?
1: I think it it comes down to the the person that's saying it. If that person knows what they're saying is intended to be manipulative, that they know it's not true, mm-hmm. then that makes it propaganda. It's I a mean, kind even of even. Yeah. I mean, look at uh, the stuff that came out of the WHO about, we don't, we don't want to use uh, autopsies on COVID patients because it's such a dangerous thing. Well, that's a, I mean, even uh, Ebola, you would need to do an autopsy and people did in order to understand how this disease works. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they're blocking that, knowing that, you know, that's, that puts a lid on how much scientists can learn about how this disease progresses and how the vaccines are affecting people and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's 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 basically an acknowledgement that they are not allowing science to function. So that directive is propagandistic, in my opinion.
0: We don't want forensic analysis of the disease. We don't want investigation of possible early treatment options. We just want this one thing, which is not only mass vaccination of the global population it seems but unreflective responses from those who will receive that and i I can't even use the word treatment because it's not it's I, i think the science is becoming quite clear that it's not it's doing very little to, uh, you know, address transmission. And then of course there are, you know, many other problems as well. I have to read something that you wrote. I have a quotation here because I just think it's so interesting when we're starting to get into this, this territory of the role of government and and the political uh, sources of much of the messaging that we're seeing, right? Um, You said, this is a war about the role of government. It is about your freedom to think, speak, ask questions and about whether your individual autonomy is downgraded to a conditional privilege or whether it it remains a right. It is a war about whether you are to remain a citizen or become a subject. It is about who owns you, you or the state. Can you elaborate on that? And and maybe also say something about what you mean by autonomy, because I'm not sure that's a word that, uh, you know, as an ethicist, it's a word we use a lot, but I'm not sure it's something that's in the common, uh, you know, sort of public discourse.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the best way to approach it is to look at why the American founding fathers split from Britain. Because the doc, like the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution essentially boiled down all of the Enlightenment principles into a functional government document that made that distinction between being a citizen and being a subject. Because under previous governments, you were always a subject that basically at the whim of the queen, she could have you beheaded if she wanted to, right? Like it was, I mean, that's the, ex- the extreme end of it, but that in the end, you your life could be completely altered by a decision made by, you know, the royalty or the, or the, uh, the government that was running your country. And what the founding fathers essentially said is that rather than making the herd or the, the, the society, the foundation stone uh, of, of how, you know, or, or, you know, rather than making the herd, the foundation of society, and then making rights conditional based on the objectives of whoever's uh, running that society, whether it's the queen or the government or or the mob through a vote, that you know basically your rights become conditional in that kind of a, a mind frame. Whereas what the founding fathers said is that the individual is the cornerstone of society, and that their rights are they, they come before the rights or the or not the rights but the um, the needs of the herd. So that that's where this idea of inalienable rights comes from, and so. You know, that's, that was the idea of if you're a free person, you are an autonomous human being, that you have the ability to do whatever you like, as long as you're not violating somebody else's rights. And so that made Americans a collection of free individuals who have a government tasked with defending those freedoms. Whereas what's happening now is we're shifting back to a government being tasked with managing the herd. And it really is similar to a farmer and his cattle or, you know, the shepherd and his flock that you're the the government is reemerging as this entity that tries to maximize the the good for the most people, even if it comes at the expense of of a few. And that's where you become a, a subject again.
0: This is so interesting because I think one thing that a lot of people uh, who I speak with who, you know, think of themselves as trying very hard to do the right thing and very concerned about other people will say that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to accept a limitation on my rights for the sake of others, for the sake of help, helping other people. And I think in the public discourse, it's even going so far as to say that what's ultimately important is the good of all, the good of the collective, the good of the herd, as you're saying. Um, and it seems to me, and, and you can you know comment on this or tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that that's an interesting debate to have, you know, whether or not individual rights are more important than the collective good or the collective good is more important interesting question but as Canadians we can't come down on the side of the collective good being more important because that's not what our country was founded on that we didn't decide that way back when you
1: know well the the other problem is that the moment that you make a, a right conditional you need a referee and that's why every time that you give any government in history the power to play the shepherd it always turns into a corrupt and murderous society because, and, and, and I go as far as murderous because I mean you look at what the, the extreme ends is places like Cuba that you know the wrong thing gets you chucked in jail or, you know, the gulags in the Soviet Union. Eventually it progresses to that because anybody that, you know, speaks out against it is threatening the unity of the herd and therefore they need to be silenced. And if you won't be silenced, you eventually send the police around. And if you still won't be silenced, well, then we have to remove you from society. So there's a progression there, right? And it's the same thing with your physical autonomy that it starts with, well, we'd like you to get the vaccine and eventually it ends up with you being held down and then what you know is the referee really capable of ensuring that uh, that vaccine is absolutely safe or should individual human beings have the right to uh, look at the data for themselves you know the principle of informed consent and decide how you're going to or whether or not it's right for you mm-hmm. and i mean that's the entire nuremberg trials after the second world war was intended to reestablish that principle in all of society that i mean that the trials was not just about justice it was also about deprogramming to say listen no matter what you have the you know your individual autonomy begins and ends with the right to make your own choices that's why public health is allowed to make recommendations but not mandates And there's the line that we've crossed.
0: And it's so interesting, the the Nuremberg Code, you know, that you make reference to, um, in some sense, that's a promise, a promise to all of humanity, right? That we will never never sink to the depths from which we have just recovered because we've learned our lesson about that. Um, And we will promise to put checks and balances into society uh, such that choices Fundamentally important choices like choices about your health care, choices about whether or not you want a certain treatment such as vaccination, whether or not you want to participate in a research trial, that what's important there is not whether or not participating is good or bad for you, what's important there is whether or not you want to, it's your right to decide. Right. And
1: there's a lot of folks that get very upset with that analogy with the Nuremberg trials they say well you know nobody's being loaded onto boxcars and taken to gas chambers here, but you have to realize that that's the end result of something that begins much earlier like in 1932, the first idea comes with we're going to start engineering society to achieve better outcomes for your health and for your safety. And, you know, it begins with, well, you know, there was too many Jews, therefore we will make life uncomfortable for them so that they can emigrate. It didn't start with boxcars. It started with, they wanted to get them to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And then when the Zionist movement started, uh, became stronger, where they were all wanting to move to uh, Israel, what was then Palestine, then it shifted to, well, we don't want the Jews to create their own state. So then all of a sudden they didn't want them to emigrate. And so, it, you know, basically they were trying to shepherd the Jews into various different directions, depending on, and, and then if one direction didn't turn out, then they shifted gears and eventually it turned into the final solution, this horrible, horrible thing that happened, right? And the same, the same story also happens to their own people, right? I mean, uh, uh, the, the schizophrenic patients in Germany They were seen as well that these are a genetic drain on society so that for the good and safety of all people, we need to remove all these people. And they, I mean, the the schizophrenic patients in the mental uh, institutions were the very first ones to be executed by their own government. It began there.
0: You know, it's interesting that um, so many of the people who are most upset about what's going on in Canada right now are people who either grew up in Eastern Europe, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, or who have, you know, very recent relatives, maybe parents who did we have a very, very close connection to that. Uh, and, and they say very, very strongly, very vehemently to me, and sometimes with a shaky voice and tears in their eyes that uh, you don't understand this is where we're headed. We've seen it over and over and over in history. You you know, they're saying to me, someone who was born in Canada and my parents were born in Canada, you know, they say to me, you can't understand this because you've never had to, you've never faced this. You haven't seen the early signs of it. Um, you know, I can just kind of feel chills as, as I'm saying it right now, because for them, it's, it's so clear that these initial steps of encroachment on freedom and the kind of messaging and language that we were talking about earlier, where we're sort of converting from a discussion about what's good for you and a kind of altruism and this will enhance your life and here are some free things and you know that sort of language and how that uh, translates slowly uh, but effectively into the language of fear and into the language of uh, classification and symbolization and ostracization and then eventually you do have people physically uh, shipped off uh, and removed from society in the most horrible way possible
1: yeah I mean um, my uh my grandfather's sister was a mental patient at uh, she had disorganized schizophrenia which isn't even recognized anymore today as a, a form of schizophrenia but um they spent the entire war shuffling her from one institution to another to stay ahead of, of the squads because they'd get tipped off when it was, you know, that institution's turn. And then at, by the end of the war, they had to keep her at home to, because it was no longer safe anywhere. Right. So that and I think that I mean, those stories have had a big impact on me to, because, I mean, he basically was talking, or always telling these stories of how a government turns against its own people. I mean, that's the other thing that gets missed in a lot of these discussions about that time period is that, you know, the, the, the Jews in Germany, they weren't Jews as a separate group, they were Germans who happened to be uh, adherents of the Jewish faith, but in every way they were Jews in the same way that there are Catholics and there are Protestants and everything else. Right. And so the government started by turning against a portion of their own people and stripping them of their citizenship and their equal status in society and so you know that's where when when you start to see lockdowns and and you know essential versus non-essential and now vaccinated versus versus unvaccinated all this class this is a really slippery slope that we're on and i mean even the language that the government is using now is constantly pitting one group against the other and make and giving the sense that the one group is causing the danger to the other I mean, the the when you have a fearful society that's ready to even trample their own children with masks, and now you give them these kinds of messages, it's it's really scary. The kinds of forces that they're playing with.
0: This, uh, yeah. So so this idea that we're, you know, we're battling each other. Our greatest fear is the other.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah this othering of of a portion of society. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, do we know of historical examples or any that you can think of? This is really putting you on the spot. We need to have sort of a comprehensive, you know, picture yeah. of history in mind, I think, to get at this. But do you know of historical examples of, of, of successes at overcoming this, you know, where people were divided, where they were bifurcated, where they did uh, fear and, and even hate the other, but we're able to come to a place of, uh, you know, less fear and, and, and sympathy and empathy even and unite sort of politically and as fellow citizens as friends even. Um, do, we, do we have some lessons from history that can help us with this, help us out of this situation?
1: I think the best example of all is the uh, uh, America, you know, in its early beginnings started as a group of colonies that ha- each of them absolutely hated each other uh, or, and hated each other's religions. I mean, the early colonies, if you were a Catholic walking into a, um, you know, a, a Baptist colony, uh, there's, you know, I mean, there's stories about the, the sign at the, uh, at the, you know, entrance to the colony that says Catholics not welcome. And if you do, you're, you're going to be executed. Like it was that intolerant. But as a result of, you know, being forced to live with one another, uh, and having so many different um, different religions all stacked up on top of each other, that's where this culture of um, of tolerance basically evolved, and why the Declaration of Independence and in the U.S. Constitution, is, or and the Bill of Rights, is built on this idea that. You know, we create this we create this code of individual inalienable rights, and that allows us to manage to live with one another. And so that's the counteracting force to this othering, where anybody that's on a different tribe is fair game for persecution. So they codified that out of an out of a set of necessities and recognizing those necessities in order to defuse that tension over time.
0: So if I understand you correctly, it seems like the, the linchpin there was uh, so uh, needing to live together out of necessity. They, they realized their t- sort of dependence on one another and that they needed to work together or that they were better working together. I, I don't know. Do we have that sense of necessity now? Our, do we need to work together? We all live in our little homes. We spend four or five hours a day, on average, according to the statistics on our smartphones, on our own. Uh, Do we have the same kind of uh, social and economic and cooperative pressures at work now uh you know are are we in the same same kind of pressure cooker that they were in then that allowed them to to get out of that situation do you
1: think well i think that it begins with a culture with you know the the average citizen on the street recognizing that when government creates and and gives to these cancel culture type of ideas of you know you're either with us or against us you're either part of the the politically correct crowd or your alt-right or whatever other label they come up with for people that, you know, they're trying to change the culture. And if we allow that, we break, we, we will, we will drown under this. So we have to push back in, in the way that we talk to each other, that we, we can't let it happen. You know, I think that it really, it really is a cultural solution to what's being pushed on us. That it's a recognition that this isn't sustainable and that we can't do this to each other.
0: Sustainability is such an interesting question issue there that you bring up because we've been, you know, on the one hand, you might think, well, no people are going, you know, no group of people uh, is going to do what we've done. They're not going to follow the, the social restrictions uh, to, to you know, meticulous. They're not going to take two doses of that. Well, it's, it turns out that, that we do, right? We're incredibly compliant. I, I, a big question in my mind is, you know, where, where do we stop? Where is that limit? We're seeing, you know, this kind of quite possibly leaky vaccine effect in some of the countries that have the highest vaccine uptakes, like the UK uh, and Iceland um, and Israel, uh, which should suggest to us that the vaccines, and I won't use the language of not working, but they're not quite doing what uh, the public health officials are saying they should do. Will that recognition eventually filter down into the popular opinion? Will we realize that the promises we've been made, that um, that that our key to getting out of this situation is just to do what the government says, get our two doses and then we'll be done? Because now we're looking at, I mean, our prime minister just, uh, you know, we just found out that he's ordered a hundred and... 25 million in total doses or something, which if we have 38 some million uh, people in Canada and you do the math that's and that's that's doses beyond what we've already given out right so that's much more than just two doses we're talking about boosters future boosters potentially every six to 12 months, maybe more frequently than that. Is there a line, do you think that people won't cross is there a line where we just get to that's too much.
1: I suspect so. I mean, part of it is that, you know, there's only so many boosters that people are going to be willing to take and then see their vaccine passport expire before they go, I'm not playing this game anymore.
0: (laughs) But
1: but I think the other thing is that, I mean, and there are people now starting to say, listen, you know, they've been vaccinated, but they're burning their vaccine passport or they're refusing to... uh, like they're willing to stand alongside the rest of us. So that's the beginnings of, uh, of a shift, you know, that the culture is saying we're not going to follow the government down this path anymore. And I think that's, you know, that's the only way out of this is that folks have to recognize culturally that we're not willing to create a culture that does this to other people, that this is too much of a slippery slope, and they're going to stop, you know, they're, they're not going to go along that path.
0: These are very interesting people to me, the people who have been vaccinated, but stand up for the rights of the unvaccinated. And I would like to talk to those people. I'd like to hear more about, you know, what they think and why they hold that view. Um, But it's consistent with some uh, sort of messages I've seen on social media lately. They're sending the message, right, that um, this is not, you know, you can believe something is good you can even believe that someone else ought to do it without thinking it should be mandated, without thinking it should be required. And it seems to me that that those two elements are, are sort of are, are stepping above and transcending the division that we're seeing. And we need more of that language we need, because that puts decision making back with the person. That, that increases autonomy and focuses on our inalienable rights again.
1: Right. I mean, it used to be a core value in our society it, it, when it comes to free speech. It's a really a similar idea where mm-hmm. if somebody made a different choice or had a viewpoint that you didn't agree with, you know, it's like, I, I will argue with you to the death about your position, but I will stand with you to the death okay. for your right to say it, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that that idea, even though it's written down on a constitution, ultimately. The only A Constitution is just a piece of paper if the people don't believe in it. and so it's the culture that has to stand up for it and defend that. And f- until very recently most people were willing to do that because they understood the history that got us there and, and the principles. It's only a, a recent situation here right now where that's fallen apart. but I don't think that most people have lost that. I think it's a matter of just reaccessing that.
0: And we need to realize how how much power we actually do have. We are, I think, at the beginning stages of seeing a lot of uh, legal action uh, begun against the the mandate enforcers, right, whether it's the educational institutions or the uh, health bodies like the College of Physicians and Surgeons or the government itself, and um, those cases are most likely going to take a while to work themselves through the courts, months and months. Um, but by the time they do, there will be a judge who hears the evidence and who weighs the evidence and who has to uh, make some very fine grained differences between, you know, uh, that's yes, where,
1: that's where I'm a little less optimistic, which <laughs> is that, I mean, the, the courts have signaled comp- full bore that they've been captured by the, uh, the regime here, and that they're not legalizing things by ruling against people, they're just refusing to allow things to get to the courts and dragging things on and finding all sorts of little technicalities to avoid ever having to judge on it, which keeps this situation going and normalizes it. And the only way that that's going to change is that if there's a broad cultural um, shift that says we're not okay with this, that will force the courts to finally start to rule properly again. I mean, there's a great a scary warning from 18, I think 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson in the United States. I don't know if that uh, court case rings a bell.
0: No, please tell us about that.
1: That's the court case that brought segregation in as a legal system in the United States. And it was started by a group of people acting together, regular citizens, that staged a, a Black man on a, on a um, what do you call it, on a tram Is sitting in the wrong section. And even the policeman that arrested him was in on it to make sure that it would be designed for the perfect court challenge, right? So they wanted to be able to overthrow these small laws that were popping up at a state level. And so they took it all the way to the Supreme Court and with the expectation that, you know, the Bill of Rights, the U.S. Constitution should be able to defend against this ridiculous regime that was was growing up on a state level. But because the culture was so strong in favor of segregation, the courts found some technical way to avoid it. And by doing that, it actually ended up um, legitimizing what had been normalized already. So it actually backfired and turned the entire legal structure into being supportive of segregation. So that's what expanded it through the entire country.
0: Um, I'm just gonna pause here. OK, we'll get going again. Um, you know, I think a lot of people hearing that story, um, I might even, you know, in hearing that story, think, well, we're talking a lot about race here, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about a, a segregated, um, a segregated society with yeah. rules that enforce segregation based on race. And what was so unjust about that is that a person's race is not something that they can choose. Yeah. But hold on a minute here because the difference now is that whether you're vaccinated or not is something that you can choose. Do you think that makes a
1: difference? No, I don't think it does because in the end, it's not about whether or not you can choose it, it's whether or not you have autonomy over your own decision. You know, the the, the my body, my choice idea is a sort of embodiment of what the, uh, what the Bill of Rights was all about, right? right. And so that if you are, are giving anybody the right to overrule your autonomy, it's irrelevant as to how beneficial or not beneficial that decision would be for them. It's their right to protect themselves. I mean, all of, all of uh, our, our, our uh, constitutional rights are built on the idea that you have the right to do whatever it takes to be safe, but you're not allowed to do something to somebody else to make yourself safe. In other words, you can put on your mask if you think that that's gonna make a difference, you can stay home, you can get vaccinated, but you do not have a right to strip somebody else of the autonomy to manage their own risks and their own priorities in their life. Because at that point, you have subjugated them. They are now under your control because you've decided what's best for you, allows you to override their decision-making process. Mm
0: Let's talk about
1: mass hysteria for a little bit.
0: (laughs) I read a very interesting article in, I think it was the International Journal of uh, some kind of justice. I kind of forget what the, what the journal was now, but it was all about the phenomenon of mass hysteria and how that can happen. Yes. Uh, we have some, you know, interesting historical, interesting and worrisome historical examples of this, like, like the witch trials, mm-hmm. um, the inquisition, you know, things like that. Uh, but my understanding is that, you know, when you have uh, a phenomenon of mass hysteria existing in society. You have a group of people who start to believe that they might be exposed to something dangerous. Yes. And that could be a virus, it could be a poison, it could be an idea, it could be a political movement, it, who knows, right? It's just something you believe to be dangerous. And they believe that threat to be real because someone says so, or because it fits their experience or maybe a combination of both. and. Uh, due to that, a threatening delusion, they, this group of people starts to get very upset. And so whether or not um, the belief is based in something real or not, it creates a kind of collective anxiety. And then we have a kind of snowball effect whereby other people say, oh, there's something to worry about here. I guess I better get worried. And then that kind of spreads. And it, it actually models a kind of infectious disease model, right? And there was um, I think a real world case of this uh, in 2018, an Emirates flight, uh, 203, I think it was. And some passengers started feeling flu-like symptoms. And when others observed this, they started to feel sick. And then there was this kind of panic that set in. And by the time they reached their destination, which I think was New York City, uh, they quarantined the whole plane. And interestingly, they found mm. out that only a few people were actually ill. But this power of, you know, we might call it the, the placebo effect. It's actually really the nocebo effect, right? Because it's kind of believing that, that you're sick when you're when you're not really. Um, nothing physical going on at all. It's all psychological. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, right? It's, I guess I'm not suggesting necessarily that people are becoming the people are getting the virus because of the fear, but well, I think their it, fear is, change. yeah, go ahead.
1: I think it is actually a much more common phenomenon than we tend to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people in the stock uh, trading world see this. I mean, basically it, fear and greed creates these irrational moves all day long on every right. time scale, scale, whether it's you know short term, I wanna be on board with this, or I wanna be out of a position versus even like the, the huge stock market bubbles. So, you know, that's where that psychology plays uh, all day long. And many social phenomena are very similar. I mean, there's a wonderful book written in 1841 by Charles McKay called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And he documents some of these big hysterias that have happened over time, whether it's rich hunts, crusades, the tulip bubble in the 1700s, yes, you know, right. all these crazy phenomenon where you know, this, uh, some infectious idea, essentially, grips society, and everyone else gets pulled into it, and can't seem to be uh, able to pull themselves away from it, Mm -hmm. because of that peer pressure, that hive mind mentality that we have.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I think that, you know, our herd instincts are very strong from way back evolutionarily, because, you know, survival in a herd meant, like, you know, if you're not the alpha predator in, in, in a, you know, out in nature you have to hold together as a group in order to find safety within that group Mm -hmm. and so that is so deeply embedded in our instincts to always try to orient towards the center of the herd because that's where safety lies and so when the herd gets on some crazy idea it's extremely psychologically manipulative in the way it affects us you know
0: if I remember some uh, reading of evolutionary psychology. If I remember accurately, uh, my recollection is that a lot of this has to do with, with the amygdala and, and how we have evolved over time, and that um, that, that fear of being physically separated from the group—it's not just a fear that we're going to starve or be harm, physically harmed or be killed, but just that phys- um, you know the fear of the social ostracization. Our brain actually processes that as a kind of pain. Yeah right and so uh, you know that can really help to explain i think why we feel so much fear now not just potentially of a virus but a fear of being um a fear of there not being a lifeboat for us, a fear of being stigmatized, a fear of being uh, labeled as a misinformer, as an outcast, uh, being debunked, You know, any right. of these terms that set you apart from the crowd and put you in the minority group. And it will mean that there are fewer social goods for you, whatever those things are, right? And that, that fear, um, we process that in the same way as we would process the fear of, of cutting ourselves or the fear of dying or the fear of something much more physically based, right? Um,
1: well, it's interesting how um, even in the animal kingdom, like you look at a horse herd, one of the ways that the older horses will discipline a young, uh, a young member of the herd that's being unruly is that they will shut him out. They literally just pretend he doesn't exist, turn their backs to him and avoid him. And this you can watch this little horse just almost drive himself mad trying to regain entrance to the herd. It's an extremely difficult psychological process. And yet humans are doing the same thing. I mean, what was one of the big um, uh, mechanisms that communities have used throughout history to get you know, to punish somebody? You would shun them right? You would shut them out of, nobody was allowed to talk to them anymore. You just basically cease to exist. And that was, you you know, banishment. It's the same idea. Like we've been using that for a long time because we're wired exactly the same way
0: someone might say that, well, what are we supposed to do? You know, the horse can't do anything about it. The horse is just gonna keep trying to get into the the herd. What do we do? But the difference between us and the horse is supposed to be that the horse in virtue of being an animal is motivated by pleasure and pain, is purely uh, a a sensory animal. I mean, Aristotle told us that animals only have sensory souls. Uh, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill told us that animals are motivated by pleasure and pain. When it comes to human beings though, we have reason and that makes us different from the non-human animals. And that's supposed to allow us, if we were in that horse situation, to step back and say, is the thing that all the other horses want really desirable? Are the all the other horses on the right track here? Could I have just as good a life on the other side of the paddock? Could I find some other like-minded horse friends? You know, <laughs> those are the things that, that, that reason gives us. Yeah. Um, and we need to remember that, that we're rational. We, we're not just automatons that are supposed to follow orders or clamor for uh, the, the, the scraps that are left over, right?
1: Well, the trouble is that our rational mind is really a very recent and thin uh, layer in our you know, neural network. It's, a, it's not a, a, a core part of our brain. It's a newer level that's been added on top. And I mean, this is where this, this psychological idea of the rider and the elephant comes from. That, you know, like the elephant is, it, and like there's a rider sitting on the elephant, and you always think that the rider controls the elephant so the rider being the, the rational conscious brain and the elephant being the emotional subconscious brain but you start to really like this is what the psychologists have been telling us is that the the rider is actually more working as a a, a layer that rationalizes what the instincts or the emotions of the elephant wants so it's it, the, the 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 elephant decides which way you're going and the rider then rationalizes why you're going in that direction and that it's extremely difficult to gain the perspective that allows you to override what the elephant wants. Mm-hmm.
0: So we, and hopefully we don't want to say that it's inevitable that we are going to be.
1: No, but I think it's difficult to, yeah. to over. Like, I think that's the, that's the thing is that the rational mind is not as powerful As we would like it to like to think that it is in order to overcome these impulses that we have. And so I mean this is where the idea of principles and getting perspective and all of these things are all you know mental tools that we have to be able to step back and, and regain control with a rational process.
0: This is very interesting and I think really helpful because one thing we're seeing in the debates that so many of the debates that we see now is that you know launching new data and new pieces of evidence and, and put it framed in slightly different ways at the other side if we can even call it that uh, is is completely ineffective yeah. uh, because and, and, if, and if what you say is right that could in large part be because it isn't reason that's processing that data and giving our emotions instructions about what to do. It's actually kind of the other way around, that it's our our emotions and and our our base sort of animalistic um, needs for belonging that is putting reason to work to make sure that That part of us gets what it wants, and so that explains why we have cognitive biases and why we're interested in looking at some information rather than others. And um, you know, this is, yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is you know back to where my roots are in the cattle farming world. Where if and you have a herd of cattle you know, a lot of of low stress handling techniques is not about, you know, brute force pressure to get cattle to do things. It's actually about setting up a scenario where the cattle are forced to think for themselves, to think their way through the gate, to think their way out of a situation, right? I mean, a similar story is what I brought up in that article is the buffalo that um, go charging over the edge of the cliff. And the only way that you can make the buffalo think about it is to split the herd into two directions. And at that point the, the herd has to decide which direction it wants to go. And so then all of a sudden there isn't a clear choice. So it has to stop and engage the rational thinking process to figure out which direction it wants to run. That's the, the, the rational brain, that thin layer finally kicking back in. And in a sense, I think that's what we're facing here now too is that we need to, you know, those of us that aren't okay with this need to make enough noise that the folks in the middle are kind of going, well, okay, now I'm not sure which direction to turn because there's two groups and that noisy group is is competing for airspace with the other group.
0: And I think, so now last, I have to time, think. last time we talked, you mentioned this interesting phenomenon whereby we're starting to see vaccine regret because yeah. it's only once a person gets vaccinated, that maybe the fear subsides enough, such okay. that the rational mind can kick in and look at the evidence and realize, I, I don't know if there was a good enough reason to do this, right? Or, um, and so it's interesting this idea you have that you know with the with the cattle analogy that sort of breaking apart. I mean, in some sense, it feels like what we need to do is is come together, but maybe that's exactly the wrong kind of social messaging. Maybe we aren't all together. We need, to, we need to sort of pull back from society, re-engage our rational capacities right. and think about whether or not we're on a good course here, medically, scientifically, politically, morally. Um, remember that as Canadians, we have inalienable rights and look into why that is and whether there were good reasons for creating those in the first place. And if so, hold on to those things.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it, when I think about, uh, for example, when a group of people s- uh, sings together, right, there's something wonderful, there's a wonderful group feeling that, okay, we're all singing in tune, we've got this wonderful, like, there's a, there's a sense of belonging that comes from that. It's not just about the music, there's actually, uh, if as a participant, there's something very, you know, like you're in the warm embrace of, of a group of like-minded people, right, and the only, but this sort of phenomenon, these mass hysteria, even though it's not relying on music, it is still relying on the same emotional core of a sense of belonging with the group. And that as long as there's nothing challenging that visibly, then you can find this wonderful identity and meaning and togetherness by just giving in to this this song that's playing essentially, right? And I mean, I think that's where a lot of the censorship comes from, is to prevent other counter choruses from breaking in there. And it's not about that you need one step. It's not like you're, you're like, uh, you know, singing Frera Jaca, where there, I can't remember the name of the, the phenomenon where you, you have two separate uh, songs, basically going at the same time that play mm-hmm. off of each other, you're not trying to create that what you're actually trying to do is just sing out of tune, everybody sings something different, literally anything different. So that there's such a chaos that forms that you can no longer just orient towards that one clear voice in the room. So the more, the more people are sharing memes and telling their own stories, and it doesn't even matter how many conspiracy theories there are and how many of them contradict each other, it really doesn't matter. The point is that you're simply denying the crowd this illusion that there's one chorus to follow. And that's where you reach the point where, okay, I, I, I can't orient to this anymore. There's too much noise. I need to stop and think. So
0: interesting that that musical analogy because the thing about the beauty of a choir, the beauty yes. of singing together with another person, is not so much that you are. Uh, being identical with the others but that there's a kind of harmony and harmony requires difference and that there can be a kind of unity or commonality or beauty but it requires a degree of I I don't know if discord would be the right word but it requires a a degree of difference and if we want to have a sort of political harmony again we have to not only allow difference, right, but embrace it, a democracy requires it. And we're, by 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 cutting out the different voices, it seems to me that we are strangling the very possibility, you know, the oxygen that a democracy requires to, to keep functioning. Julius, I should let you, you know, if you have any last thoughts, um, I'll let you <laughs> jump in.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, I think, uh... I think that pretty much does sum it up, I think that- Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I mean, I really think the voice that you're bringing to this, (laughs) Debate. I don't even know if it's fair to say we have a debate. We need it, you know, uh, but it's so unique and so interesting and so informed by psychology and philosophy and sociology and history. Uh, you are a true polymath, um, a, a mass, you know, a, a student of so many things, and and that's the kind of broad bird's eye view that. Um, we always need to understand human nature and our place in the world and how best to live with one another. So I really appreciate this. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. I've, I've really been enjoying chatting with you. This has been fantastic.